0: This is Brian Blake, and you're listening to KPFT Houston. And now, Houston's only primetime radio program dedicated to news and concerns of the lesbian, gay, and transgender community. This is Queer Voices. This week, Brian Levinka talks with Brandon Mack about the Houston LGBTQ Plus Political Caucus candidate endorsement process.
1: You can find our card on our website, thecaucus.org. We also have a specific website dedicated to our political action committee, The Pact. Uh, it's uh, org, or you can uh, find it through a link through there. Uh, and in addition to that, the March primary election is going to be coming up Uh, during the first um, weekend in March, so it is uh, right around the corner.
0: Deborah Moncrief-Bell has a conversation with Dr. Cody Pike, who is the first transgender, non-binary, trustee of the Harris Health System.
2: The U.S. Constitution, uh, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, part of that is making sure that while people are incarcerated, they have access to the standard of care for health care. And Harris Health... I think does an an amazing job making sure that we do provide good care to our our patients when they are incarcerated at the jail. And
0: Brett Cullum talks with Tamari Cooper, the artistic director of Catastrophic Theatre, about their benefit gala next month titled It's a
3: Drag. We want people to come and celebrate the art form of drag. Embrace your inner queens, kings, and everything outside of and in between. We're going to have wonderful drag performances. Obviously, right now I'm trying to negotiate with some very talented performers already here in Houston. Queer Voices starts now.
4: This is Brian Levinka, and today I'm speaking with Brandon Mack of the H. Houston GOBT Political Caucus, the screening chair and trustee position number eight. Is that correct, Matt Brandon?
1: That is correct, but just want to also correct that it is the Houston LGBTQ plus political caucus.
4: I know you're in the busy process of endorsing candidates. Can you talk about that process and what goes into it?
1: Our screening process, screening and endorsement process, first and foremost, starts off with candidates submitting a questionnaire to the Houston LGBTQ plus political caucus because they want to seek our endorsement. So. Uh, One thing I want to make very clear is that we as a community and as a caucus do not send questionnaires out to candidates to solicit them for our endorsements. They have to actively seek it. So we always release them and make them available to any candidate from President of the United States all the way down to the end of the ballot for them to seek our endorsement. So once they they submit the questionnaire, they go through a a 45-minute to an hour-long screening interview with our screening committee. The screening committee can be made up of any member of the caucus who has completed our candidate screener training and is a uh, active member or a current member of the caucus. And they go through a screening interview. After that, all the candidates in that particular race are evaluated by our screeners on a point system um, based off of not only just the point system, but also the interview, the screening questionnaire. There is a recommendation by the screeners in that particular uh, screening committee that is then presented to the entire body, and it is the entire LGBTQ plus political caucus that then ultimately votes on that particular endorsement. And all of that fun takes place at our endorsement meeting, which just passed this uh, almost two weeks ago on January the twenty seventh for the March primary.
4: Why is the endorsement the endorsement of the caucus so often sought out by the candidates?
1: The reason why is because our uh, card or our endorsements are widely considered to be the progressive slate so it is often an indication to voters that if they have been endorsed by the caucus that not only have they gone through a very rigorous screening and endorsement process they're probably going to be regarded as the most progressive candidate in that particular race along with that Uh, We have a wonderful infrastructure to support our candidates as a part of the Houston LGBTQ plus political caucus in the fact that not only do we distribute our card at polling places, we also phone bank, we also um, help them and support them in their uh, get out the vote efforts. So there's a lot of infrastructure and support that candidates receive when they are endorsed by the caucus. And that's one of the reasons for why we're often signed out for our endorsement. How did you get
4: involved with the caucus? I know you've been in it for a while.
1: I am in my 10th year of being on the board of the caucus now. And I got involved right after the Houston Equal Rights Ordinance, unfortunately, well, when it passed, I got involved. And then unfortunately, as we all unfortunately remember, it got repealed, that even increased my involvement of wanting to be a part of the caucus to talk about um, how our politicians can become better engaged with the LGBTQ plus community, but also how can we make sure that our caucus is reflecting all of the intersections that the beautiful LGBT plus community represents, not only in terms of sexual orientation, gender identity, but also race and ethnicity and socioeconomic diversity.
4: For people that haven't heard of the caucus, what can you tell them about in 10 seconds?
1: In 10 seconds, we are the uh, oldest civil rights organization dedicated to the LGBTQ plus community in the Southwest. Not only do we uh, endorse candidates, but we also uh, educate our community and hold politicians accountable.
4: I know we can't go through all the endorsed candidates, but where can we get information about that? And when is the election?
1: You can find our card on our website, thecaucus.org. We also have a specific website dedicated to our political action committee, The PACT. Uh, it's uh, org, or you can uh, find it through a link through there. Uh, and in addition to that, the March primary election is going to be coming up uh, during the first um, weekend in March. So it is uh, right around the corner. And you definitely want to make sure that you continue to be politically engaged. There will be likely be a runoff after the March primary. That will happen in May. And then, of course, we have the general election in November.
4: And so does the caucus reendorse for the runoff or how does that work?
1: Yes. So we have already announced that for the runoff, we will uh, do another round of endorsements for the primary. For that, once again, the candidates have to seek our endorsements and they can contact screenings at the caucus.org for more information. But we have already announced we will be doing endorsements for the runoff.
4: Why should people vote in this election? I know that every election is the most important, but why is this one so important?
1: This one is especially important because of the fact that Uh, so many of the individuals who are on the ballot are going to be the ones who have direct impacts on your lives. We have a number of state senators and state representatives who are on the ballot, and as we have seen in these, especially these last two legislative cycles, the LGBTQ plus community is under attack. So we need to make sure that we are sending representatives who are going to protect our community, but not just protect our community, but fight back against these attacks we also have local elected officials so we have our tax assessor collector race we have our district attorney race so really critical races where these individuals are going to have once again direct impact on the lives of us as Houstonians so we need to make sure that we're voting for the best candidates who are going to be reflective of our values
4: and is there anything you want our listeners to know about the caucus before we go
1: Absolutely. I would encourage everyone to please become a member of the caucus. We host our meetings the first Wednesday of every single month. I definitely encourage you to come check us out and also once again visit us on our on our website, thecaucus.org. Well Brandon Mack, thank you for coming on. Thank you so much.
0: Part of our Queer Voices community listens on KPFT, which is a non profit community radio station. And as such, KPFT does not endorse or hold any standing on matters of politics. If you would like equal airtime to represent an alternative point of view, please contact us through kpft.org or our own website at queervoices.org. This is Queer Voices. Still to come on Queer Voices, Deborah talks with the first transgender non binary trustee of the Harris Health System. And Brett Cullum talks with the artistic director of Catastrophic Theater about their benefit gala next month.
5: This is Deborah Moncrief Bell, and I'm delighted to talk tonight with Dr. Cody Pike. Dr. Pike was appointed to the Harris Health System nine-member Board of Trustees last May. Cody, welcome to Queer Voices, and just let me ask, how did that come to be?
2: Honestly, Deborah, it is a bit of a mystery to me as well. So my understanding is uh, when Commissioner Leslie Briones, the uh, Precinct 4 Commissioner, took her position, she wanted to bring in some new talent into various public boards. And she started asking around and someone, I don't know who, uh, put my name forward. There, There is a process to apply for open board positions, but that was not something I had done. Um, her staff, Commissioner Brionis' staff, reached out to me at my, at my job and said, hey, you know, Dr. Pike, your name came up as someone who might be a good fit for this board position. Would you be interested? I said, absolutely. I went through several rounds of interviews with Commissioner staff and then with the commissioner herself. And then I'm I'm happy to say that I was selected as her nominee. And then um the that goes to the commissioner's court for a vote, and I was unanimously approved by commissioner's court to be appointed to the board with my, my terms starting on July one of last year, 2023.
5: Explain what Harris Health System is.
2: Harris Health System is the business entity name of the Harris County Hospital District. So the same entity, just our our public facing name is Harris Health System. We are a public entity. We're technically a division of the state of Texas. In the Texas um, law, we are charged with providing medical care to people who are of lesser means or, you know, I think the the statutory language is like the, the needy residents of the county of Harris County. Because of how populated Harris County is, that makes us the, I believe, last I checked the numbers, we are the third largest public safety net system in the United States,
5: I have used Harris Health uh, in the past, and I got excellent care there. The doctors are trained through Baylor, so you get as good as you get anywhere, I think. And it is something, especially for those who might not be insured or underinsured and -hmm. those that are indigent. You have quite the background as far as qualifications. I got exhausted just reading about all <laughs> the all the things that you have to your credit. First of all, I guess we should say that Dr. Pike identifies as transgender and non-binary. And maybe you can take a second to explain what that nuance is there. You use both she and they pronouns. You're mm-hmm. a medical doctor an attorney, a bioethicist, and an adjunct professor at the University of Houston College of Medicine. So in your spare time, you you serve on the board of Harris Health, and you also have testified in Austin in legislative hearings for the horrible bills that were transphobic and mean-spirited and wrong-minded. One question, what is a bioethicist?
2: There are a lot of questions there. I'll, I'll start with the um, my, kind of my, my gender identity and how I, I identify both as a transgender woman as well as non binary. In my journey, uh, as transitioning and exploring my gender identity, the binary of gender was something that did not resonate with me. I initially presented just as non binary, I exclusively used they them pronouns, and I played with gender a lot. And the more I gave myself permission to explore gender, the more I found that while I still identified as non-binary and as something that was not on, you know, on one end of, of the spectrum of gender or the other, I identified more with a, a feminine experience and with, I guess, the moniker that is woman compared to other experiences. And there are, there are plenty of people I know who identify as non-binary women. It became important to me to embrace both of those aspects of my identity. So that's that's kind of how I landed on the she slash they and presenting and identifying as both non-binary and as a, a trans woman. To your question about the bioethicist, a bioethicist is a field of applied ethics, applied philosophy, wherein you look at sticky ethical questions and try to figure out what is the, the, most nor- the, the term is normative, the best way, the most ethical way to approach them. Bioethics oftentimes is associated with medical ethics, but it's much bigger than that. There are bioethicists that look at animal ethics. There are bioethicists that look at environmental ethics. So it's really just the application of normative philosophy and normative ethics to something in biology. And my focus, of course, was on the more medical ethics side of things and healthcare policy side of things. But that is, in a nutshell, what a bioethicist is.
5: It seems to me all these qualifications are very well suited for serving on a board such as Harris Health, and it's, it's a two-year term, unpaid. Like I said, you do it in your spare time. What exactly does the board do?
2: The role of the Harris Health Board of Trustees is to provide guidance and oversight in the operations of Harris Health. And and there's a balance between, you know, we don't want to be micromanagers. We are not involved in the day-to-day decision-making on each little thing. That is that is authority given to the CEO and his staff and team, Dr. Porsa. But we're there to make sure that the hospital is, and the hospital district is being run in a way that meets the charge that we're given by the state, that, that we are delivering high quality health care to people who don't have health insurance or who are indigent or people who reside in Harris County that are undocumented we're really more of an oversight than a manager if that makes sense. It's there's there's a balancing act between delegating authority and making decisions ourselves. That said, we are very much in tune with all of the decisions that happen and and we oversee a lot of different aspects of the Harris Health system.
5: Harris Health oversees a fully integrated 2.3 billion health care system, and it includes community health center, same-day clinics, multi-specialty clinic locations, a dental center, a dialysis center, mobile health units, and two full-service hospitals in Harris County. And it was one of the leading service providers for those that had HIV AIDS, and it is a key safety net. Last year, Harris Health took over healthcare services for the county jail. We already know that Harris County Jail is the largest provider of mental health services in the state. What are some of the issues involved with dealing with an incarcerated population?
2: One of the hardest things with the the jail medical services that Harris County has taken on is it, it just comes down to funding you know again as a as a state entity we are not as funded as say a private hospital and with the jail medical services Harris County jail is essentially a, a a small city within a city and so i think the the largest challenge from you know my uh, I, my experience on the board so far is just volume the the volume of folks who they get arrested and then they're they're booked at the jail while they're waiting for trial and they might be there for nonviolent crimes or maybe they didn't commit the crime at all but they haven't been exonerated yet or they haven't had their trial date but they are still in the jail and every moment that they're in the jail they have a constitutional right uh, to, to health care. The the U.S. Constitution, uh, which prohibits cruel and unusual punishment, part of that is making sure that while people are incarcerated, they have access to the standard of care for, for health care. And Harris Health I think does an, an amazing job making sure that we do provide good care to our our patients when they are incarcerated at the jail but we are not the criminal justice system we we don't have control over the flow of those patients and we can't get them out if they don't need to be there if they let's say you know maybe they qualified for for a bail bond or something like that that's not really an arena that Harris Health has a say in that's much more reserved to the Harris County sheriff and and other criminal justice entities. And so we have an overwhelming number of people in the Harris County jails and i'm I'm hopeful that with bail reform and with continuing building coalitions with our um, criminal justice organizations and and law enforcement that we will be able to decrease the number of folks that are simultaneously incarcerated in the the county jail system.
5: You've done extensive research on the incarcerated health care, and you've given talks on pregnancy care in jail. So if someone is arrested and they're taken to jail, they may already have an existing health problem Mm -hmm. or chronic ongoing, such as diabetes, or they may actually get diagnosed for the first time with something at the jail they may also become sick while in jail and there's been some pretty dreadful cases recently. How is Harris Health addressing that issue?
2: Our board meets monthly at a minimum. Every month, we, there's a statutory requirement that the jail medical services team gives a report to the board. And if we see something off or something that breaches the standard of care, the board throws its weight behind, we need to investigate and and figure this out and get it taken care of. I'm happy to say that since I've been on the board, I have seen a tremendous uh, improvement in how we deliver healthcare to our inmates. And we have, we call them dashboards, We have multiple systems tracking, making sure, let's say, if a inmate asks to see a medical professional, we we start a clock and we time how long does it take for them to be seen. We track making sure that people are consistently getting whatever medications that they need. So you used an example as diabetes, if they were taking something like metformin or if they needed insulin, we're making sure that we're tracking what what is the time. And by tracking these things, we identify opportunities for improvement and can immediately act on those. I have been actually very impressed with where the board is. And while I've only been on the board since July of last year, I've heard horror stories of where, what the situation was in the jails prior to Harris Health System taking over the jail medical services.
5: And serving on the board, you don't actually do hands-on medical care yourself through this system.
2: That's correct. Yeah. No, my my role in the system is is purely from the, the board of trustees lens. I don't do direct patient care uh, and My my day job, as it were, the thing that I pay my bills with, I'm I'm a practicing attorney here in Houston.
5: Being that you identify as transgender and non-binary, how does that reflect itself in the care of patients at Harris Health?
2: When I was appointed to the board, I was the first transgender person, or at least first out transgender person, ever appointed to the Harris Health board, and that was, when, when my appointment was announced, it was simultaneously exhilarating and terrifying. I am pleased to say that I had folks reaching out to me, members of the LGBTQIA plus community, saying how important it was to see that kind of representation, to see a member of our community on the board. And I'm on the opposite end, uh, sad to say that I got really aggressive threats through my, my Twitter. I was attacked online. There were hit pieces written about me, trying to claim that I was lying about my credentials. Which you know, if you if your if your source is Google, uh, you know maybe you should dig a little bit deeper. But the the scariest part was when I started getting mail at my place of work uh, attacking me, and that was that was really stressful. But I will say the impact has been amazing. This service position, like you said, it's not paid, has been the most fulfilling and most wonderful opportunity I've had of my, life of my career and it changes how conversations are happening in that boardroom having a trans person present having a visibly queer person an out and proud queer person at the table talking about okay but what are we doing about this what are we doing about addressing these specific health needs social determinants of health faced by our community and I love the the folks I work with. I like I know their hearts are in the right place, but you don't know what you don't know, right? And right. so having having me there, I think allows a different perspective that that no one else brings to the table, and I think that is going to create beneficial changes in how Harris Health provides care to that subset the, of of the population we provide care for to to the LGBT+ community.
5: You have such impressive credentials. How do your other board members stack up? Are they all physicians?
2: Currently on the board, there are two physicians, uh, myself and our chair, Dr. Andrea Katakostas. There are lawyers on the board. There are business people, labor organizers, professors of law. Uh, There are people who have worked in state and federal government. It's a really diverse thing, and I think that's important because... If you imagine if the board had nine doctors doctors we we all have a certain lens that we take to things and while because I'm also an attorney and an ethicist I think I think a little differently from someone who is just an MD just in air quotes but I don't think that the board would be running as effectively if it was all physicians. I think the physician, the physician experience is important to have there, and we should always, I think, have at least one or two physicians on the board to give that clinical perspective. But I really enjoy that our board is diverse in terms of the experiences and the skill sets that different board members bring to the table because it allows us to tackle very complicated questions of how to best deliver health services to, to the constituents we provide for uh, with an interdisciplinary approach.
5: This is Deborah Moncrief Bell, you're listening to Queer Voices and I'm talking with Dr. Cody Pike who serves on the Harris Health System Board. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think is important for people to know?
2: I often get asked how I got to have the amalgam of degrees that I've collected, and it is certainly a non-traditional story with twists and turns, and and I don't want to give the long-winded version, but there's a through line to all of it. I started out in medical school, and while I was there, became obsessed with normative bioethics and medical ethics, making sure that ethics and ethical decision making and normative processes were involved in the delivery of healthcare. That led me to the master's in bioethics and health policy. In that, I took a course on medical ethics and the law, which led me to have an interest in how law affected policy. Simultaneous with this, I was doing advocacy at the Texas Capitol because, as you mentioned earlier, there have been all these bills attacking reproductive rights, attacking the LGBTQIA community, attacking especially transgender people and transgender children. And I wanted to understand the law so that I could be a better advocate. And then it just so happened in the course of the, the JD portion, the law school portion of my dual degree, I fell in love with practicing law, which is why I don't practice medicine currently and I practice law full time. But all of this has been me chasing a root cause analysis looking to what is at the at the root of all of the ills we see in socioeconomic disparities. Why why are people of color receiving worse health care than white people? Why are undocumented persons getting worse care? Why are queer people getting worse care? Why are people born with uteruses not getting access to what they need? And this combination of degrees is my attempt to understand every facet of the root cause. And my personal conclusion is it all comes down to our policies and our laws. And it's my hope that by continuing to speak up for folks and speak up for my community and my own experiences that um, we can get some real changes going on.
5: That sounds wonderful. I'm so glad we have you there. And thanks so much for being with us tonight on Queer Voices.
2: Thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you.
5: This radio program, Queer Voices, has existed since the 1970s on KPFT we have this little crew of folks working every week to produce what's no longer unique because we're almost mainstream now, but we're still an important voice that might not otherwise get heard because it's not on that many places. So KPFT is very important to give voices to those who might not otherwise have voices. So as Glenn always says, you participate by listening. You should also participate by supporting the station. So please go to kpft.org and make your donation right away. I'm Brett
6: Pellum. I'm joined by Tamri Cooper. She is a co-founder and the current... Artistic Director of the Catastrophic Theater in Houston, which actually won an outsmart, gayest, and greatest award for Houston's Best Experimental or Alternative Theater Company for, like, several years running. She has been performing her entire life. Tamari was a graduate of HSPVA. She's appeared in some notorious Infernal Bridegroom Productions shows, and she's even shared the stage with Jim Parsons back when he was just... An actor here in Houston She has done her own review every year For what will be the 27th edition This coming summer Tamari Cooper is currently acting As part of the cast in Catastrophic Show At the match It is Micklemaire's It is Magic Which runs February 9th through March 2nd And I am tired just saying all that But Tamara, welcome to Queer Voices Hello, so happy to be here Tammy, tell me first about It Is Magic. What is this show about?
3: Well, we have a long history with Catastrophic Theater of producing plays by Michael Maher. He is probably, I think he's next to maybe me, our most produced playwright. We've done, I think, almost eight productions. We've done remounts of productions. We've received commissions and created original plays with him. And this play is one of his most recent works. He actually is based in Chicago and has a theater company called Theater Ubleck, and they almost always premiere his work. We are very happy to be bringing this now to Houston. It has been performed in some other cities across the country, but it is a play that definitely, if you have any history in theater, if you've been an actor, if you are a theater lover, if you've ever gone to the theater, there is a lot of humor and situations in it that really sort of are are satirical of, of the experience of being an actor, and specifically an actor auditioning. Now, that said, you don't have to be a theater lover. You don't have to be an actor to gain access to this work because, really, it's that's just one entryway into this play. If you have ever gone out for a job interview or gone on a first date or ever just put yourself out there for something you really, really wanted, then you can relate to this play. And you can specifically relate to the power of no, which is certainly one of the themes in the play. Mickle's work, I think, is always very funny there of course are moments beyond just humor there's pathos as well but this one is just particularly hilarious <laughs> i i think that i don't think anyone could go in and watch this play and not be laughing their asses off one of the things in the summary you mentioned that it's about community theater specifically It is set in a community theater. I don't, at the same time, though, think that this is some kind of attack or or spoof of community theater specifically. I think it's more just showing what it's like to work in theater, particularly one maybe that is a little more low budget where a few people wear a lot of hats, um, which, of course, I can relate to with catastrophic. Community theater is a hard thing, I think, to to absolutely define. Sometimes we think of community theaters as being just purely volunteer only, maybe more out in the suburbs, for example, actors that, I guess, don't consider themselves to be professional actors. But then I think there's a lot of gray lines in that because a lot of actors that we know and work with definitely have worked in community theaters. And I even just look at how we are awarded rights for productions. I always have to say if we're an amateur theater or a professional theater. And of course, we think of ourselves as a professional theater. But that really does come down to the licensing house. Some people only will determine you're a professional theater if you have all equity actors if it's all licensed union performers and and stage managers others will call you a professional theater if you pay the actors anything even just a dollar so that definition i think is is really sort of vague i don't again i don't want anyone to think that we as the catastrophic theater are making fun of community theater because that's absolutely not the case with this play
6: Oh, I don't think of it as a pejorative term at all. I've done both community theater and professional theater myself. And I right. can tell you, sometimes the community theaters have more money and do better
3: stuff <laughs> than yeah. some of the professionals. <laughs> yes, yes. It's all over the place, really. But I think yeah. it really just more of like the idea of what you'd find in any theater where there are people who are just devoting their lives to that specific company. There is sort of the typical idea in this play of the artistic director, who is a very powerful person in the play. And then I play Deb, who is a playwright, first-time playwright, who is frantically trying to cast her play, which is an adult adaptation of The Three Little Pigs. And Amy Bruce plays my sister Sandy, and it's not quite clear what Sandy does, at the theater, but I am also the entire marketing department, so you can see how there's, you know, we do a lot for this little company. Well, that just
6: mirrors life, basically, because I know that you, as the co-founder and artistic director of this company, and if you could tell me just a little bit about the mission of the Catastrophic Theater and how you started this troupe back in 2007 with Jason.
3: Well, Jason and I went to high school together, first of all, so we have... Now, been Jason's in last name? Jason Nodler. Jason and I went to high school. We went to HSPVA, graduated in 1987. Here I am dating myself. We somehow, life just continued to throw us together. We ran the Jerry Brown campaign, Houston headquarters in 1992. We worked in a punk rock club called Katal Huyuk and dated each other's best friends, things like that. So we've always been thrown together. Sometime around the punk rock club, we decided we wanted to start doing plays and And we formed the former company, Infernal Bridegroom Productions. And that had a great run. We unfortunately had to close Infernal Bridegroom due to some very poor financial mismanagement, which I'm not going to get into that whole story. It wasn't us. But like a phoenix rising from the ashes, we were able to create a new company, which now is catastrophic. And we've been together since 2007. Many of the same artists that worked with us with Infernal Bridegroom came along with us for the formation of Catastrophic Theater. I think our mission is something more formal, like we are an ensemble-driven theater dedicated to creating an exchange between artists and audiences. And that's very true. I would say about our work that we do primarily original work and lesser-produced works. So there will be some avant-garde classics. For example, Jason is a great lover and fantastic director of Beckett. And so we will throw some of those into our seasons. There are other playwrights like Susan Laurie Parks, Sam Shepard, Marie Irene Fornes that make their appearances in our seasons. But then we also do develop a lot of original work. Obviously, my shows are original. We've worked with our ensemble to create new works. We've had rock operas. We did Small Ball, which is actually a Michael Maher play, which was an original commission for a basketball musical that is still sort of making its way through the country right now, having different versions. I would say, too, about our work that it's less about wanting you to come out of there saying, wow, that really made me think. It's more that we want you to come out and say, that really made me feel something. Our work is definitely not always plot-driven. Some people might find that confusing. It is not message-driven theater either, It may feel confusing at times what you're experiencing on stage, but we always just say, let it wash over you, and whatever you take from that, whatever you feel, is the right answer.
6: I'm talking with Tamarie Cooper of Catastrophic Theater. Your company has lived in the Match Theater complex since I think they opened it. Tell me about how that relationship came about a little.
3: Originally, actually, the kernel of the idea for MATCH, which was going to be a multi-arts organization facility, started way back in the day when we were Infernal Brightroom Productions. And along with Diverse Works and a few other organizations, some which no longer exist, we had come up with this idea. It went through various different names of creating a place that we had a permanent space, but that we shared with some other organizations. It evolved greatly from that from being just maybe five theaters or five arts companies to being a more multi-use facility for all smaller to mid-size arts organizations throughout Houston. At one point, we just sort of, we weren't really in there in the prime sort of final planning stages of Match, and we were existing over in a warehouse facility, which had been the former Diverse Workspace, and then became The docks. But Kirk Markley, who is now the director at Match, and at that time they were really sort of working on curating and getting people to come in as tenants, as renters, and he alerted us to the fact that there was a theater at Match when their first year that would probably be a great fit for us. And so we jumped on that and it has been a really good home for us. There, of course, are limitations when you don't own your own facility, when it's not yours 365 days a year. So, for example, when we've had to cancel a week of performances when an actor, for example, had COVID, we can't add an extra week at the end of the run. Someone else is already coming in. Things like that can make it difficult. You know, you have to build and remove your set very quickly because, again, you have a limited amount of time in the actual theater space. But you don't have to clean the bathrooms anymore. And things work. And there's actual air conditioning and heat that that is reliable. And there's really cool technical, you know, Theater equipment. So these are things that we certainly didn't have access to in all of our earlier times, and some of these not intentionally built for theater spaces. And I do like that. I like the central location of it. I think our audiences feel pretty comfortable coming to Match now at this time. Do I ideally someday hope to have our own? space, our own box, of course that's still going to always be a dream of ours but right now where we are at as an organization Match is still a really great fit for us
6: well, I feel that matches really changed the game in Houston theater because it's really expanded a lot of people coming in and doing these shows and doing really what you guys do, like very new, experimental, very cool stuff. I mean, I, I'm addicted to the match. I'm probably there every weekend.
3: And I do love some of that cross-pollination you see where we're walking through and there's some you know, Indian dance festival going on and then some other kind of film festival going on in four and there's people carrying their chillos for a concert in the gallery. So I I do love that. And sometimes things can come out of that and grow with with partnerships with other organizations. I think that actually, you know, there is a demand now that there could be a match to at this point because there are so many groups that do take advantage of the facility. I know that at one point there had been some other real estate when they were first building match that was available right behind it. And I know that they wish that they had at that time been able to see into the future. You know, they couldn't at that point possibly raise money for a whole nother second facility, but that now it's like, oh, that actually probably would have worked. So who knows? Maybe Maybe there's a way to have another facility like that. But it has been very important with some other places closing down since then, too. So, you know, where do we all go? Where do the smaller and the mid-sized theaters perform, not just theater, but dance and performance art, music, you know, you name it.
6: Well, Tamari Cooper of Catastrophic Theater, speaking of fundraising and things like that, you have a big gala coming up. April 27th is the date. Tell me a little bit about that, because I think the Queer Voices people are going to be pretty excited about the theme.
3: I am so happy to tell you this. So, we always have one big annual gala. The word gala is a little misleading because it makes it sound a little bit more formal. And our parties are certainly not formal. They are pretty big and raucous and ridiculous, I think, is, is the better way to describe them. This year's theme we have landed upon is, This Party's a Drag. And that meaning that we want people to come and celebrate the art form of drag, embrace your inner queens, kings, and everything outside of and in between. We're going to have wonderful drag performances. Obviously, right now I'm trying to negotiate with some very talented performers already here in Houston And then it's also fun for just people that, like me, who are not drag performers, but who love the art form and look at this as an evening to have some fun and to just in a very amateur way sort of... Take on a different drag persona for the evening and people can, can interpret that as they will. I mean, I love it when people that have never done drag go full on and you see someone's husband walk in and he's completely transformed. It's fantastic. But if people want to just come in their jeans, that's great too. And we will have special drag stations where people, if they're feeling, they're feeling it with all of the wonderful drag going on around them, we can, we can add some makeup and we can add some facial hair. We can do all kinds of things. But yeah, it's definitely celebrating the art form. And particularly, you saw my show last summer, and you know that I went ahead and sort of took on the absurdity of the attack right now on drag, which we all know is layered with other attacks on the LBGTQIA community. So I like putting this out there. I like to be in support of this art form. And I think there's a lot of similarities you'll find in particularly experimental theater and the type of theater catastrophic does and with drag. I mean, both are about authenticity, about being able to create something, to tap into that creativity without any li- limits, without rules and restrictions, being able to just really feel safe and present yourself in a in your true self or in a fun form of expression. And there's definitely some crossover between theater and drag. I mean, my favorite I guess, famous, I put the quotes around it, but drag queen, of course, is going to be Jinx. Monsoon, which we've all got to know through RuPaul and now with all of their wonderful projects. And they're a theater kid. You know, that's what they grew up doing. So, yeah, I the amount of talent you find in drag and in Houston's local drag scene, not enough respect. I'll say that for Houston in general always, but I I want to see more of our drag scene get some of that national spotlight. I was happy to see Blackberry on Dragula because that was very great and to see her go so far with that too was fantastic. Sadly, being a co-artistic director and a mother and wife, I'm not out at a lot of drag shows these days. I don't think I really got back to them much after the pandemic, but I I keep up a little bit through social media, and I am just really happy to see, you know, so many people still going, still doing it. So, yeah, so that's going to be our party. We'll have a lot more details as we get closer to it in the spring. It is a fundraiser, but we always try to keep those tickets within a reasonable cost too. It's usually like 50 to $75 for a general admission ticket. And you get all the food you could ever want and free drinks and all that entertainment. So it's really what you would probably spend on a typical night out anyway. And this time you're doing it for a great cause. <laughs> well, one of the things I always
6: love about Catastrophic Theater is you guys have pay what you can, even for your tickets for your general shows. It's so nice. I mean, you can kind of decide exactly what you want to give. And it's not set. It's not like Tuts where you're going to pay 150 bucks to go see, you know.
3: Pay what you can has actually become a core value for us, not just a ticketing model. First, it seems like, well, will that work? But it does. And part of it is that you will have people who at this point... Maybe they just they're not in a place financially to, like you said, afford a high price ticket to go see theater or see any kind of art. And so we want to remove that financial barrier. We feel like it's it's more important to get people actually into the theater to be able to experience it. And then it works because there are other people then who do come who do have the financial means to purchase a ticket. At a higher cost. And so if you are in that place, then you know when you're buying a ticket, for example, at $50, that some of that is going to go towards, you know, this program that will help someone, maybe a college student, maybe somebody who's just having a hard time, who's in between jobs, whatever, who's never gone to theater, so they're not sure what they're getting into. You're helping them get that seat. And yeah, so it's it's really important to us that we continue to, to offer pay what you can.
6: I'm Brett Cullum, and this is Queer Voices. And of course, we are talking with Tamari Cooper of the Catastrophic Theater here in Houston. And I know you've already apologized for being a heterosexual cis woman with a kid and all of that kind of stuff. But I think you could definitely bear that title of honorary drag queen because okay. every show, I mean, every Tamari show, you have you're surrounded by this chorus of drag, and your persona in that show has a very camp a very drag sort of quality to it and i remember once you had like ted cruz being hunted by feral drag queens in a forest and you've had drag tinkerbell you've had drag gwyneth paltrow and barbie orgies and things like that i mean let's face it you're pushing a pretty queer aesthetic Right yes. There anyway. it's, true.
3: it's true. My gender and sexuality may may not fall into the queer and you know non cis, but I I do consider myself an ally, and my best friends are queer and. Yeah, you're right. It's sort of been a camp type of thing my entire life coming up with that, that that sort of iconic sort of personality and humor and just my favorite things in pop culture, too. So I do apologize, but I want to be there so much as an ally and do whatever I can. And sometimes if that's just putting these issues and things into my own entertainment platform, then I do think that's really important. And I'm, I'm very honored. And I have to say, going back to Outsmart 2, you know, we have various awards for theater and stuff around town. And the one that has always meant the most to me personally as a theater is when I have won the, you know, actress or actor awards over the years. And it really does. I know because it's also the community is voting not just a few random people. And it—it's that's the one that I I happily have the plaques in my back room from the Outsmart Awards. So just putting that out there. And how great, too, that we also have received recognition through Outsmart for being the outstanding experimental theater in Houston. So thank
6: you, Outsmart. Your one-woman shows, how did you first come up with that? I mean, because that was a while back, but what made you start that?
3: Well, the very first one, I was, gosh, that was like 1996, (laughs) and we had really just started doing plays with Infernal Brigham, and I actually did not have theater training, per se, through college. I was a dancer, and I just had it in my head that I wanted to create a piece that was a lot of my choreography, but it was mixed with me cooking dinner for the audience and telling stories and having a fashion show because I was also quite the vintage thrift store maven at the time and also I had some friends in a band so they were going to play on the roof and that was the very first Amalalia it was at the Orange Show it was just two nights and it was super fun and it was great and my now co-director and wonderful bestie Jason saw it and was like we need to do more of this and let's do it with Infernal Bridegroom next year so that then led to a show that I did on a school bus and I really wanted to do another school bus show Brett just a few years ago I was like let's get back on the bus it was so unique and and strange and it's just not a good financial model (laughs) you can't get a lot of audience onto a school bus at one time and then now we have to be responsible adults and pay for things like insurance you know and yeah, my dreams were dashed for that remount, but that was Tamilia too, and they just sort of evolved from there. They didn't even used to have scripts. I cast some of my neighbors in them, I think, in the beginning, and they always sort of were what was on my mind, or taking my own personal stories, my take, and mixing it with a very vaudevillian sort of component. You've got tap dancing, you got shows, t- show tunes, that type of thing, but. Again, it's usually been performed by a very interesting motley crew of musical theater type performers. I will highlight someone like Walt Zibrian, who has been in so many of my shows and played such a featured role in so many of them. Walt is not a singer, nor a dancer, although he has done some pretty fantastic moves in my shows. But for me, he's just – he's a part of it. He's essential to the shows. And I also like the fact that we have a real diverse group of actors. So you'll have some people that are in their 50s and some people that are, you know – very large and we're, we all just look like real people. We're not that perfect polished sort of musical. Oh, here comes the chorus and here's the ingenue. And then they brought in the dancers, you know, it's, it's, it's real people and it's very intimate, but doing very big stuff right in your lap. So our sweat may be hitting you as we're singing about egg rolls, but you know, it's, it's real people in front of you. And I think that's what sort of makes it different. I, I'm not really a musical theater person in the sense that I don't really go out and see all the new Broadway shows. One of my dear friends, Scotty Lepton, who is a performer, he was the Tinkerbell last year and he's been a stage manager for me. And he's just a you know obsessed with musicals. And so he's always got the latest thing playing and and he's just horrified by my lack of musical theater knowledge. <laughs> and sometimes I'll even say, I don't really like musicals and he's like, What? But and that's not completely true, but I guess I just my musical theater love comes back to more in the the early days, the golden sort of MGM mu- musical film classics, you know. And so, yeah, I, it's it's an odd thing. I, I do say that there are people that get dragged to my shows who come up to me afterwards. Maybe it's someone's date, you know. They're like, "Oh my god, now I'm doing like a straight guy voice." Oh my god, like you know, I hate musicals, and I loved your show. So it it is open to all. I really do think.
6: Well, Tamari Cooper, now that you admitted that you are not a big fan of musical theater, I think we should probably wrap this up because we're on Queer Voices, and we're probably getting hateful calls right this second. No, just kidding.
3: <laughs> and I, I don't mean that for all musicals. I just mean that it, I, I guess what I would say is just like anything at Catastrophic, anything with Infernal Bridegroom, mean, anything coming out of my brain, it definitely goes through its own bizarre, unique filter. That's what we love about you. That's what we
6: love about about Catastrophic. Just a reminder, it is magic. It opens February 9th, and it runs through March 2nd. That's right. And you have, like, free beer
3: Fridays sometimes. Every Friday within the run, we will have free beer Fridays, which is a fun way to just hang out a little bit. The cast will rush out, usually, from the show. We'll get changed and come out. And you just hang out and talk with the audience members that stick around and talk with the cast about the show and enjoy a a high quality canned refreshment. And we will have some that are not beers as well in case you're not imbibing. So, you know, just it's a good way to just build community, I think, and get to know everybody. We have an opening night party too. If people come to opening night, that's also the whole audience is welcome to come to that. That's just down the street in the mid-main lofts. And we have talkbacks too on some of the Sundays where one of the Sundays, the playwright Michael Maher actually will be in town. I think that's going to be the 25th. And after that Sunday matinee, he'll stick around and we'll have just, again, very casual conversation with him about this play and about him as a playwright and his relationship and history with Catastrophic. So that'll be really fun. That's the
6: 25th of February. Thank you so much for coming on here. I have been such a fan of you, your shows at the Catastrophic Theater. It's probably my favorite theater company just because I myself am a little bit odd and like and like to see dancing cockroaches and singing about egg rolls and all
3: of those things. Well, we we love <laughs> having you there, Brett, and really appreciate your contributions as a critic and just as a journalist covering the arts in Houston. Thank you so much.
0: Martha, what that fella on the wireless just say? about them interwebs. You don't have to ask Martha. We've got all the names, dates, and webpage links for people, events, and anything else mentioned in the show right on our own website. It's QueerVoices.org. We even link to past shows and other tidbits of information, so check it out. QueerVoices.org Besides, Martha is a cat. She doesn't know anything about websites. This has been Queer Voices, which is now a home-produced podcast and available from several podcasting sources. Check our webpage, queervoices.org, for more information. Queer Voices executive producer is Brian Levinka. Andrew Edmondson and Deborah Moncrief-Bell are frequent contributors. The News Wrap segment is part of another podcast called This Way Out, which is produced in Los Angeles. Some of the material in this program has been edited to improve clarity and runtime. This program does not endorse any political views or animal species. Views, opinions and endorsements are those of the participants and the organizations they represent. In case of death, please discontinue use and discard remaining product. For Queer Voices, I'm Glenn Holt.
6: This is KPFT Houston. I
5: have uh, a request, It's short and sweet. I
4: have a request at Rock... Hey, can I request a song, please? Hey, can you help me a
5: song? Of course we
0: can. Friday's on the Great Wide Open, the Rockin' Friday edition. Also, request edition 2. Call 713-526-5738, extension 2. Talk to Jack. Get your request played here on KPFT. Hi, this is Jack. Can I take your request? Into the grave. It's the Rockin' Friday edition of the Great Wide Open, every Friday at 9.30. We take in your requests and play them. My friend Jack and I are waiting for yours. Call early, call often. Oh man, that's a good one. The Rockin' Friday and request edition of the Great Wide Open, Friday starting
6: at 9.30 in the morning, here on KPFT. Do you find yourself scanning for something different yet familiar? It's at KPFT Houston. Blues and hi fi can be found at the end of our Sunday blues block each week. My name is Clint Broussard, and I'd love for you to join me Sundays from 5 to 7 p.m. Central Time for a deep dive into the blues and all of its shades for Gulf Coast Radio, the colors outside the lines. It's blues and hi fi Sundays, 5 to 7 p.m. We also re air Fridays. From 2 to 4 p.m. on our lovely HD2 channel. You can catch us worldwide at kpft.org. It's listener supported, commercial free, KPFT Houston.